This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us. You are listening to Evidence for Faith, the voice of Rosho Christi. This is the show where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true, where we help Christians become thinkers and thinkers become Christians. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. Kevin Harold. All right, and we are here today to talk about the evidence for the existence of God. So we're going to do that in an interesting way. We're going to talk about three different arguments for the existence of God. But before we do that, let's do our quote of the week. This one I found reading uh, Utopia by Sir Thomas More. Now, this was published in 1615, so this gives you an early idea about what early Christian thinking was about reason and so here's, a, here's the quote, reason doth chiefly and principally kindle in men the love and veneration of the divine majesty. So this isn't something new. This is something that has been true about Christianity for a long time. Well, we've got a uh, news item. It's kind of neat. This came off of the Evolution News and Views website. And it says, life is designed to fight Darwinism. So, kind of interesting. Now, we've done a lot of shows on how life works, what happens with mutations, how the cell adapts to new environments. So, this just adds more information that shows that the intelligent design view of living cells fits the evidence better. This News article says, Neo-Darwinian theory teaches that mutations are random. Then a process of selection chooses which ones to preserve. Some mutations are random for sure, right? No cell can anticipate where a cosmic ray will hit. But how then can cells regulate mutations, turning on a, quote, low mutation rate phenotype, close quote, when they're under stress? So this was about an article, some research done, published in Current Biology by McDonald and team who experimented with E. coli and their response to mutations. So if you remember from past podcasts or past shows, if people uh, remember when we talked about some of the things that happens to cells that are under stress. So when a cell is under stress, it starts making decisions about what to do, and it will turn on genetic information. Organisms also do this, except they will adapt their germline so, so that their progeny uh, will have different genes turned on and off. But for bacteria, they do this, and then they will divide so that they have new bacterial copies that are under different instructions. So apparently one of the things they will do is 
change their adaptive rate, so the way they control mutations. So the article continues, the authors believe that mutations are the source of, quote, beneficial adaptive variation, close quote, but they cannot deny that they also produce deleterious genetic load, right? So from an intelligent design view, you go messing around with uh, intelligently designed genes and you're going to mess things up. And the experimenters recognized that, they found that. Uh, then they said, when a cell invades a, no a novel environment, it's able to switch on a mutator phenotype, okay, which allows the cell to mutate faster. It has a 10 to 100-fold increase in a mutation rate. The fact that this mutator allele switches on is an indication that there's a functional purpose behind it. It's risky because mutational load is likely to drive many of the cells extinct. So basically, if the bacteria get into a new environment, new food supply, different stresses, they're stressed, they will go into a mutation mode where they will accept changes to the, to the genetic information, even though it has a higher chance of going extinct, but it's its, its only chance to survive. That makes sense? Yeah. Uh, the author did not give, oh, I'm sorry, here's a quote from the paper. It says, we find that after approximately 6,700 generations, four out of eight experimental mutator lines, so these are bacterial lines that are known to mutate quickly, had evolved a decreased mutation rate. We provide evidence that the accumulation of deleterious mutations leads to selection for reduced mutation rates, muta uh, uh, reduced mutation rate clones in a population of mutators. So the uh, the authors did not give any examples of any beneficial mutations. All they proved is that the populations tend to evolve a decreased mutation rate, thereby cutting off the source of beneficial adaptive variation while saving themselves from deleterious genetic load. So did that make sense, you guys? Um, so nodding doesn't work. Uh, would the summary be what then? The main point would be the main point is that the genetic information in bacteria is designed to vary itself. So it's been pre-programmed to not only change itself but also to accept mutations. So when it's under stress, it will allow itself to be mutated. It won't correct the mistakes. So, you know, a lot of people don't realize that uh, DNA has very sophisticated uh, correction mechanisms so that mutations can be removed. But if the organism is under stress, it realizes it's having a survival problem, so it's going to accept higher rates of mutations. But then, once it adapts to the new environment, it shuts that response off and now goes back to a low mutation rate. That would almost sound like a computer program. Oh, yeah. It's, it is running logic circuits, absolutely, at the cellular level. And your own body, each of the cells at your cellular level run logic circuits. So, for instance, if you have, um, let's say you get burned, okay, the cells, um, obviously some cells are just destroyed, but other cells are not destroyed, they're put under stress. So what they do is they go through a logic circuit and they, they, they have a couple possible reactions. One is that they can repair themselves, two is that they could uh, call for help, and three is that they can recognize that this, the damage is too far gone, let's just 
kill our cells and scavenge, use the parts to help other cells. So it actually will go through a logic circuit where it decides what to do. So it's just amazing the level of complexity that's at the cellular level. And yeah, you use the word amazing, that would imply to me. Part of the, some of the <laughs> topics we're going to talk today about is that there has to be a programmer for that sophisticated exactly. program. Yep, it's intelligently designed, and we're going to talk about that. But first of all, let's get into does God <laughs> exist? How do we know that God exists? Well, since we're going to cover a lot of material today, um, we'll be discussing not only arguments for the existence of God, but we're going to try to talk about uh, intelligent design. What is intelligent design? How do we know that? How can we recognize design in biological systems? But we're also going to talk about the reliability of the Bible. So we're going to hit three main topics real briefly in just a one-hour show. Sound good? Yes. Sounds good. Okay. So let's jump into the uh, arguments for the existence of God. Now we're going to do three today. We're going to do the Kalam cosmological argument. We're going to do the teleological argument from fine-tuning, and that teleological means just means having to do with purpose or design, that the universe appears to be fine-tuned, and then we'll do the moral argument. So go ahead. So just jump if in. Somebody um, was just tuning into your program or your style of programs, Keith. You mean today, this program. Uh, this program. Maybe they'd be thrown off by your use of the word argument. They might be um, thinking of like a Hollywood show or somebody's yelling and screaming and shaking a fist. You're not going to yell at me, are you? I hope not. <laughs> okay. So not that kind of argument. Oh. What kind of argument are you talking about? Well, that's what I was meaning. They might have the misperception that, that you were going to base it more emotionally. So what should we tell them? Oh. A case, I think, is a better word for it. There you go. A case of evidences for. Right. The presentation. That's what we mean by argument. Hmm. So although it would be good to have a really good argument, I love a good argument. As long as we don't raise our voices. <laughs> I'd rather talk about evidences. <laughs> okay. All right. So let's do that. Um, all right. Jump into it. The Kalam cosmological argument, and we've done this, I think, in past podcasts, but that was probably more than a year ago. So here is, I guess what I should do is discuss a little bit about what a logical argument is, what a philosophical argument is, because people don't often understand the power of a, a syllogism, it's called. If you're, what you do is you create an argument using premises, okay, or statements of fact, and you present those statements of fact, and then you draw a conclusion from that. If those premises are true, right, if those statements of fact are true, and the argument itself is in the proper form, in a logical uh, sound form, then the conclusion must be true. So this is deductive reasoning, and it's very certain. It's like saying 2 plus 2 equals 4. I mean, it's that certain. There's no doubt about it. Um, so you might give the example of if... Let's uh, premise number one, if it rained, the streets will be wet. Premise number two, it rained. The conclusion necessarily follows and must be true. If the first premise if the two premises are true, the conclusion is that the streets are wet. That must be true. So you can be certain, as certain as you are about the premises, you can be certain about the conclusion. So that's very exciting to know that you can know certain things. Certainly. Ooh, I like that. You know certain <laughs> things certainly. So let's get, let's get into the first argument then. Premise number one. 
everything that begins to exist has a cause. Okay, now that seems pretty straightforward. Is that true? Everything that begins to exist has a cause. Well, that seems to follow laws of science, every observation we've ever made. So cause and effect. If something is going to come into existence, something else must have caused it. It couldn't have caused itself. Because it has a starting point. Yeah, because it didn't exist prior to existing. So it wasn't there to start itself. Okay. So that's premise number one. That seems absolutely certain. Premise number two is that the universe began to exist. So is that true? Did the universe begin to exist? Well, for years, atheists weren't sure of that. They thought that the universe was eternal, but now we have scientific evidence that the universe had to have had a definite beginning. Like what? Well, for instance, Einstein's theory of relativity, we learned that the universe couldn't be eternally existent because it's either expanding or contracting. And the Hubble discoveries, we found that the universe is expanding from the center, so it must come down to a finite point, and something had to cause that point to expand. Right. Excellent. Excellent. So, in fact, because time is linked to the physical qualities of space, um, there actually was a point when uh, time and space itself didn't exist. Right. Had to come into existence. It had to come into existence. Exactly. So, there's two premises, both backed up by solid science, that leads to an inescapable conclusion that is logically sound, logically it must follow that therefore the universe has a cause. So the universe was caused, um, and of course what we mean is it was caused by something other than itself because the universe didn't exist. Or someone. Or someone. So um, that cause is what we call God. So that is the first argument for the existence of God. Second argument, anybody want to start with this? The teleological argument, what's teleological mean? Sure. Well, the first premise for this argument goes that the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. All right. So, for that to be true, we would have to say that those are the only three possibilities. There's not any fourth possibility. So, what is the fine-tuning of the universe? That's what I was going to ask. What do you mean by fine-tuning? I remember way, way back three million years ago when my parents had this old black and white TV set. And in order to get some of the stations in, you had to move the dial real precisely back and forth 500 million times to get the snow to disappear. So the picture was just right in order for you to see it. Yeah, that's kind of basically what we're talking about, right? Fine-tuning only with the Millions of dials, well, I guess not millions of dials, but certainly at least dozens and dozens of dials that are incredibly sensitive. So let's talk about some of those issues. What's fine-tuned about the universe? Why do scientists say that it is fine-tuned? Well, we see that the laws of nature are balanced on a razor's edge. If either of the constants were off a little bit in either direction, we wouldn't exist. And there's over 30 of those constants. Yep. And I've seen some counts as high as in the hundreds, like two, three hundred. So it depends on what you count. And obviously, some of them are more fine-tuned than others. Uh, One of the ones that I like to talk about is the uh, relationship between mass and the density of mass. So during the uh, Big Bang explosion, matter was thrown out 
and the universe expanded. And if the density of that mass, if you had slightly more mass, the universe would collapse back on itself and therefore no more universe. If you had slightly less mass, then the universe would not be dense enough and it would expand um, so much so that you wouldn't even get uh, galaxies and solar systems and planets. Now, just how finely tuned is that uh, mass density ratio? Well, the if you had more mass by a single grain of sand or less mass by a single grain of sand, then you get no universe. That's how finely tuned the mass of this universe is. That's the level of precision that we're talking about. And that's just one example. Um, there are many, many more. Another example would be the speed at which the universe is expanding. If it was any faster or slower, we wouldn't be here. The odds for this constant is 1 in 10 to the 54th power. And to get a better idea of that number, I heard an example that if you were to be hundreds of miles out in space and to throw a dart blindly at the Earth, that dart goes and hits the Earth in one specific section of one subatomic particle. That's the odds of this being perfectly balanced. All right. Okay, so the, so the universe is fine-tuned. There are three possibilities then, okay? It's either physical necessity. It just has to be that way by the laws of uh, the physical universe or something. Uh, or it's just chance, right? Just happen, happenstance. Or it's design. Those are the three possibilities. Why not? So then premise number two is that it's, it is not due to physical necessity or chance. Okay, how do we know that? Why isn't it due to physical necessity? Okay, why isn't it just the laws of, of nature, right? Well, well, laws may describe things, yes. but they don't explain things. Right, the, laws, the law is not the cause. Right, it right? has no causal action. It just, it's like taking a picture and so you can understand it. Right, so while you could say that, okay, in the universe, you know, you have gravity and gravity has to have a force, okay, that, that might be true, but what is the constant? All of these laws of the universe can be described in mathematical formulas, but they have constants in them, and those constants can be a wide range of numbers. So gravity could be at any, uh, you know, at any of millions of possible settings, and the formula would still have an answer. So there doesn't appear to be any reason at all that they have to be set the way they are. That's why there, uh, it appears that it's not physical necessity at all. Okay, so if it's not physical necessity, what about chance? What about just randomly that you got it, right? It couldn't be chance because that would just be going against all the logic that we know from the laws of nature by the precision of each of them. Right, it, it seems to be far more than just chance going on. Um, it'd be like if you win the lottery... Uh, 30 times in a row. Do you think people are going to be suspicious about you? Right? They're going to think you've got an inside way of figuring out what the lottery numbers are. It's just impossible. Is chance like luck? And luck is usually personified as a person, right? Lady luck? I was trying to be non-gender. Okay. But I've been to Vegas many times. Ms. Luck? Yeah. They always see chance as a force, a person, oh, right. or even an enemy. Yeah, chance is not a force. 
right? It's chance not a person. Chance is kind of a description or a placeholder for I don't know what caused it, right? If if you flip a coin, it's going to land heads or tails. So you say it has a certain chance of landing heads or tails, but chance isn't making it land Correct. heads or tails. Correct. Chance is just saying. I don't know why it landed heads this time. But if I knew everything about the environment, I knew the position of every single molecule in the air and the exact force that, with which I flipped the coin, I actually could know whether what caused it to be heads or what caused it to be tails. So there's still a cause for it, but chance is not a force. So therefore, Keith, well, what all about that being said, okay. I would say it is due to the design because yeah. it ruled out the other two. You ruled out the other two, and so it has that to would be, be designed. Probably the best answer, the most logical answer, or Ackman's razor, is why have something really, really complex and hard to think of when you can have something as simple as there was a design, right? And there needs to be a designer to have a design. Yeah, you're right. You're right. It is uh, very has high explanatory value. Uh, let's just briefly, um, before we go on to the next one, let's briefly talk about multi-universes because, of course, I'm sure there are atheists out there banging on their radio saying, oh, yeah, but it's because of the multi-universe. That's how come. So what's the issue there? Um, I remember seeing just recently Dr. Alan Guth make quite the case for multiverse uh, he was saying he actually rolled out a long roll of this bubble wrap stuff yeah. that uh, some people get addicted to. And popping he, the bubbles. He, popping the bubbles. And he walked up and pointed to one little bubble and said that was our universe. And therefore, due to the great amount of these bubbles, um, you don't need God to explain how our universe came to be. Right. Okay, so that's the argument. Um, they have no evidence whatsoever to support it, but that is the argument. So how do we answer that? What's the, what's the response to that uh, multiverses? Well, one good response is that the problem, what they're, what they're trying to say is that you only see this universe, like we're here in this universe and we see this universe because we're here as observers. We're alive, therefore we see it. But if there were millions of previous universes, there'd be no observers there because they weren't fine-tuned the right way. So, of course you see a universe that's fine-tuned because you're, you're the only one there to see it. The problem with this argument is that if you're going to have multiverses where you've got trillions upon trillions upon trillions of possible universes, it's a lot easier to get a universe with observers in it than it is to get the kind of universe or the kind of observers that we have, right? We are more than just observers, right? We are also uh, interactive agents. You know, we have all sorts of advanced capabilities as intelligences, more than just observing. So since that's much more complex than a universe with just observers in it, and this has been described as a Boltzmann brain, right, from the... A physicist Boltman, who described this, you know, it's a lot easier to just create a universe that has an observer in it. Okay, so if it's so much easier, then there are going to be a lot more of those kinds of universes out there. If you've got an infinite number of universes, there are going to be trillions upon trillions of universes with just observers in it, 
Well, we have much more than that. We have a universe that's far more complex than that. We have a universe that has interactive agents who are not only observers, but they're also creators. They're also intelligent. They communicate. They, they, do, they make music. You know, um, they create beautiful works of art. This is far more complex than just having observers. So what that means is because we are not in a universe where there is, we are only observers, it shows us that multi-universes isn't true, right? Because the odds are we would just be observers. If the multiverse is true, we would be only observers, that's but a we're good not. argument against it. I've never, I've never thought of like explaining it as that being a counter argument to someone. But to me, it just seems like they say we have blind faith. That just seems like so out there to me. Like they have absolutely no evidence, and they That's just right. accept that with no, no evidence whatsoever. That's right. So that makes their answer a uh, multi-universe. It's ad hoc. So it's some, it's appendaged on to their atheistic worldview. Oh well. Gee, um, our atheistic worldview has been defeated. Okay, let's create this massively complex system of universe generating a, a what would it be? A machine, a device, a system, something that makes universes. Well, now that sounds to me like that could be intelligently designed also. So they really have only pushed back their problem. They haven't really solved it. So and it's very ad hoc. It's a, a really a bad way of reasoning. So. But for me, the problem, in my understanding, is what you spoke of, Then is the multiverse theory can involve all these millions and millions, almost infinite number of universes, but still a cosmological question. Where did they come from in right. the beginning? Exactly. Did, yep. They just can't poof themselves into existence. Mm-hmm. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. Kevin Harrell. And we are talking about the arguments for the existence of God. Let me see here. We are going to jump to a new topic now. So let's get into the intelligent design. Okay? How do we explain intelligent design? Is intelligent design really just creationism gone wild? Right? Is it just those scientists who are pretending to be uh, scientists and they're really just creationists? And they've just renamed themselves as intelligent design. What is, what's the issue with intelligent design? I mean, is it science or not? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Is it true? Is it science? Or is it just, you know, those religious fanatics um, trying to squeeze their way into the science classrooms? Where you hear, sometimes hear of the objection in school board meetings where because intelligence design might have a connection to theology, therefore it must be ruled out. And sidestepping the whole issue, is it scientifically based or not? Exactly. Well, let's take a look at it. Is is life an accident or is it deliberate? Well, I like to say that evolution is very good at explaining the diversity of life, like why we have 10,000 different butterfly species, but it's not very good at explaining the complexity of life. Like, why do we have butterflies in the first place? So now uh, the typical atheist response then is that, well, okay, even though we don't have a really good evolutionary explanation for the origin of life and we don't really have a very good explanation of how we can get large taxonomic changes, you know, 
new families, new orders. You know, how do we get all that? Well, just wait for science to explain these mysteries. You know, why does it look like there are all these uh, sophisticated molecular machines at the cellular level doing all these complex tasks and working in an integrated fashion? Just wait and we'll explain it all to you. Uh, Well, the neat thing is that we don't have to wait because science has already explained it. We already know why there is irreducible complexity in the cell, why there's so much sophistication and why things look designed. The atheist just doesn't like the answer. The truth is that we are able to distinguish scientifically. We're able to distinguish between unguided and guided processes. And the better, the more we're able to distinguish between them, the more it appears that the living cell is a guided process. It's intelligently designed. So what, what I want to do is look at how your brain recognizes design, okay? When you're walking along and you find, uh, say, a watch on the, on the path, you immediately know that that was designed. If you were to see pictures being beamed back from the surface of Mars and there was a flying saucer, right? You would immediately know that that was designed. Well, how do we know that? How do we know what's designed and what's not? So when we, when what happens is then we look inside the cell, we look at whether we're looking at, you know, the entire universe from the fine tuning issue or we're looking at the molecular machines in the cell, we actually recognize the intelligence behind it. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, let's explain that this is nothing new to science, right? Mm. There's lots of fields of science that uh, specifically work on recognizing an intelligent cause. Things like forensics, right? Did this person die from natural causes or did he die from intelligent causes, right? Somebody murdered him. So forensics is there to tell you that. And usually within 60 minutes with commercials. Oh, yeah, exactly. That's true. (laughs) They catch the guy. How about cryptography, right? How about guys who decode things? What if somebody's listening to a radio station and they hear in the background some kind of beeping sound? Could that be a coded message, right? How would you know? Well, there is a way to determine that. So cryptographers use that, their ability to recognize intelligence to find out. Uh, how about anybody heard of the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligences, SETI project? Yes. I mean, that would be a kind of a useless project if they weren't able to tell intelligence, right? Correct. So, and then uh, archaeology is another one. You find this oddly shaped rock, you know, is it a tool or is it just an oddly shaped rock? So this is something that's very common to science. Nothing strange about it. So what we're going to do is imagine some Scrabble letters, okay? So 15 Scrabble letters all mixed up on a table in front of you, all right? Now, I know the radio audience can't see what we've got on our notes here, but let's just say, imagine that you're seeing the letters N-D-E-O-K-N-A-M-U-E-A-R-N-V-A, okay? So they're just in a line there. Now, that... How do we recognize, we would recognize this, is that intelligently designed? I mean, you know, not the fact that it's on Scrabble letters and that it's printed and things like that, but just that arrangement of letters, right? Well, for one thing, we notice that it's complex, right? It is complex. I mean, maybe it's a foreign language, right? Maybe it's Latin. It has D-E-O in it. 
Dale, maybe it's a maybe it's a foreign language. So we recognize that it's complex. We know just by calculating the odds that its occurrence is one in seventeen quadrillion. Okay, that's only fifteen letters. You know that. So that's a. You mean the odds these letters in this order? Yes, that you mean? that's right. So it's a very unlikely occurrence. But so what? But they're just random letters. That's right. So there's no there's no message in that. That's right. Yet there's no significance to it at all. Now we can see some little bits of messages, right? You can find the words okay. You can find the words ear. I think the biggest word in there is earn. All right. But it's what we call unspecified. All right. So in other words, it doesn't refer to anything. So yeah, the word earn is there, but it doesn't refer to anything. So it's just a random happenstance that it happened to spell out the word earn. So it has no real meaning. It's not communicating exactly. a meaning to me, which I can do or any to good anything with else. Right. That's right. So it's random. It's non-repetitive. So it would be in nature. We would say, okay, this is like something like the side of a cliff face. Right. It's got lots of random crevices. It's all very interesting, but there's nothing to it. Or the shape of a rock. Okay. Well, how about a different example? Let's let's look at another 15 letters. This one is B E B E B E B E B E B E. Um, now we start to notice something, right? Where our intelligent detector brain is going, "Hey, maybe there's something here. Right? Could this be a message? Could this be also from another intelligent mind?" Well, let's think about it. This arrangement of letters has the exact same odds as far as being randomly formed. One in 17 quadrillion, right? That's only 15 letters. Is it random? No. No, it's not, right? It's a specified order. Yeah, it has order. It can be specified, right? Like it might be A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D. Now, would that A, B, C, D, would that refer to anything outside of itself? The alphabet. Yeah, it's referring to the alphabet. Okay, so it could be specified, right? But it's not complex, right? It's actually quite simple. I mean, you know, if um, you decided to publish a book full of this, your publisher probably wouldn't be too happy with you. It's just a little bit too simple. It doesn't really carry any information. Now, examples of this that we find in nature are things like snowflakes or crystal formation. And a lot of Atheists will try to say that the molecular machines we find in the living cell are like those things. They're like snowflakes, right? Or they're like a crystal formation that they just happen. They have a, you know, snowflakes look like they're complex, but in reality, they're quite simple, right? They're just the, you know, edges of a prism and with more prisms attached to it. It's just crystals. Looking at this, we can say, you know, the B-E-B-E-B-E, that is not necessarily caused by intelligence. That could be caused randomly. It could be that the Scrabble letters have magnetic uh, poles. And so maybe B is negative and E is positive. And, you know, so they're all, the ends are all attracting each other and they just kind of stuck that way. So it could be a natural occurrence, in other words. So in order to prove uh, intelligent design, we actually need to combine these two things, complexity uh, with specific meaningful order. So now, how about we have this? How about the, these 15 letters, H-I-M-Y-N-A-M-E-I-S-K-E-I-T-H. Okay, now for our radio people who are driving and didn't, couldn't write it down, it says, Hi, my name is Keith. 
All right, now that also is 15 letters, and to randomly form it, that also has a probability of 1 in 17 quadrillion. So again, our mind immediately sees that this is very unlikely, this particular occurrence of letters is very unlikely to have formed randomly, so it's probably not random. Um, it's highly complex, right, just like the first example of the random letters, that's highly complex. This time, though, it's not repetitive, right, and it's obviously not random, right, it's not random, it has a message in it. How do we know that? Because it has high specificity, okay, so it refers to something outside of itself. It refers to things. Mm. It says, hi, my name is Keith. It's referring to Keith, right? And Keith has nothing to do with Scrabble letters, you know, or ink on wood, you know, or f tiles falling out of a bag onto a table. So it's referring to something outside of itself, and that's how our brain immediately recognizes intelligence. So when you're walking along the beach and you see a heart in the sand, and it says Sue and Bob and with a plus sign, do you think that, oh, look at what the waves and erosion did? That's my first thought. <laughs> oh, yeah, right away, right? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, you know it had an, there was an intelligent mind behind that message. Why? Why, is there, why do you immediately know that's intelligent Because it's message. specific and complex. It's displaying a, a it's, meaning, a message. That's right, which refers to something other than waves and, and right. erosion, right? It's obviously not uh, caused by uh, wind or waves. And it communicates something, too, that's not exactly in the sand. It communicates love. Probably newlyweds, though, but communicates oh, yeah, love. Yeah. There's all sorts of uh, inferences that can be drawn, just as we can draw inferences from the fine-tuned universe that God loves us, that God cares for us, that God has a plan for our lives, because we can see all the trouble he went to to create this amazingly fine-tuned universe and fill us with uh, living cells with all this incredible complexity that are, are specified. To wrap this up then, what we're saying is that the information inside the DNA shows this intelligent design. It shows this complex information that is specified. It refers to things outside of the DNA, right? It refers to all these molecular machines, how to build them, how to make them. Maybe I can squeeze in a fun thing that I like in that is that we now know that the DNA is multi-encoded, which means that the same segments of code can make different machines, now, think about this. This is like if I had an instruction manual on how to build a radio, and if I read it from page one and, and did it the normal way, I would build a radio. But then if I read it from the back page and went forward, I would build a microwave oven. And then if I read it every third page and skipped pages, I would make a refrigerator. And then if I skipped every seven pages, I would make a television. That's how multi-encoded and how complex the DNA is. So That's it, amazing. Isn't it incredible? That is so cool. So they, they've shown examples of, I saw one article that said a specific coded sequence that they were looking at had 32, it was multi-encoded 32 different times. 
So it would encode for 32 different proteins, the same segment. Isn't that amazing? That really is. Well, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Rosho Christi. I'm Keith Kendricks. Jennifer Quinn. Kevin Harrell. And we're talking about intelligent design, and we're now going to move on to the reliability of Scripture. Anybody want to start with that? I really like what it's written here. It says, the Bible's reliability. Well, what does that mean? It means what you read is what they wrote. It's the real deal. I like to think of from the original writers of the Bible's books, the documents, thousands and thousands of years ago, what we are reading now in our Bible translation is what they wrote. Yeah, it is reliable. We, we do have an accurate, the, the information has been accurately transmitted. That's the point that we're going to try to get across in the remaining time. So, uh, and of course, uh, this kind of goes against the grain of the culture. A lot of people out there think that the Bible has changed over the centuries. I had one person tell me, well, we know the Bible has changed because look at all the different translations, right? (laughs) Well, you know, you see the mistake, right? What's the mistake? The mistake, they're all based on the same manuscript. That's right. That's right. Just different translations into different languages or different translations into the same language. That doesn't mean that the original source is different, right? Right. Right. So that's just kind of a silly mistake that the person made. (laughs) But but you get more sophisticated uh, mistakes that people make. Here's a mistake made by a Bible scholar whose name is Bart Ehrman. He says, what good is it to say that the autographs, in other words, the originals, were inspired? We don't have the originals. We have only error-ridden copies. The vast majority of these are centuries removed from the originals and different from them, evidently in thousands of ways. So, you know, that sounds challenging, and it's from a respectable source, well-educated, knows a lot about what he's talking about, but there's an interesting thing going on here is that Bart Ehrman writes for both the academic level, he writes for academia, for other New Testament scholars, but he also writes for the public. And that was a quote from one of his books for the public. And guess what? He writes different things for different audiences. So to the academics... The people he knows who are going to do their research, he's much more careful in how he displays the information. He can easily deceive the public. Exactly. He knows that no one would buy, that the variations make any difference to any doctrinal points. But he also knows that, the, that there's a desire out there, there's a, a demand for books that criticize the Bible, and he's ready to provide that for him. So he tries to convince them that you can't trust the Bible, that the doctrines that are in it have all changed, right? So that's, uh, that's the problem with Bart Ehrman. Now, but let's, rather than uh, just attacking him, let's actually attack the argument, okay? So the argument is that things have changed, and people give the example of the telephone game where I say something to you, Kevin, you pass it on to Jen, Jen passes it back to me, and by the time it gets back to me, it's different. Right. Right. I, I said, please order three pepperoni pizzas. And you tell her, please order two pepperoni pizzas. And she doesn't like pepperoni. So she tells me, please order 
two sausage pizzas. And I say, wait a minute, that's not what I said. So is that the way things went with the Bible? The Bible was written and somebody copied it and they made a mistake. And then somebody else came along and copied that copy, which had you know some mistakes in it. And they added even more mistakes. Then somebody else came along, took that third generation copy, copied it again, and they made even more mistakes. So by the time you get so many generations down, there's all these mistakes in it. Is that what's going on? That's kind of like the telephone game. They got the common misperception. Right. That what has happened because their person's own world, that's what happens when they communicate to someone who is not skilled in communicating, carrying on messages. So surely, if it happens to them, it had to happen way back then, or they so think. Right. And it's also not a linear thing. It's not totally linear. So it's not just that there was one line of manuscripts, right? There was a single manuscript. It got copied to another single manuscript. The first manuscript got destroyed. There's only one. Then that one gets copied, and now number two manuscript gets destroyed. It's not like that. There's an incredible different dynamic that happens when you have multiple copies. So let's say there was only one autograph, right? One original manuscript. If you then copy that 30 times, which is what uh, happened in the ancient church, then each of those copies was copied 30 more times. You know, now you've got hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts, and they start getting spread all over the world. What happens is the more copies you've got, the more certain you can be of what the original manuscript was. Because, you know why the reason, what, why the reason is? Well, it's like cross-checking each other. Yes, exactly, because they don't make the same mistakes. And that's the important thing to recognize. Yes, okay, in copy number one of the 30 that you're doing, you might misspell a certain word. But in copy number two, you're not going to make the same mistake. Even you or somebody else doing the copy, they're going to make a different mistake, not the same mistake. So all we have to do is gather up as many copies as we can and look at them, and you basically... Can retrieve the original message. Exactly. You get the original message right back because it's the one that was changed the least, right? If you, that's, in other words, the most manuscript uh, evidence supports it. Let's give an example. We've got just a couple of minutes left, so let's talk about... I know there's a verse in Isaiah that I like to use in an example. So in Isaiah chapter 53, okay, if you count up the words, there's 166 words, okay? Now, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, we had copies of the book of Isaiah that were a thousand years older than the previous manuscripts, okay? And the oldest one we had was to 900 A.D., So it was in the Middle Ages. That was the oldest book of Isaiah that we had. Then the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. So they were able to compare uh, the differences. So just as an example, Isaiah 53, 166 words. There were 17 letters that were different. Okay? That sounds like a lot, right? 17 letters, that's a lot of difference. Until you realize that 10 of those letters were just spelling differences. And as we all know, spelling changes over time. So over a thousand years, spelling had changed, but that didn't change the meaning of the word. We still know exactly what the person wrote. So that leaves seven letters difference. Well, 
four of those seven letters were stylistic, just a different style of writing, okay? So, again, doesn't affect the meaning at all. The, that leaves three letters difference, okay? So, in Isaiah, in the entire chapter of Isaiah 53, there are only three letters that are different. Those three letters spell the word light. So, prior to it, and this talks about, this Isaiah 53 talks about the Messiah, that he would be killed, and then he would see life again. So, and, and the Dead Sea Scrolls date from around 125 B.C. So, that's a prophecy of Jesus that we have in our hands that is 125 years older than when Jesus was born. It says the Messiah would be killed and then would see life again. With the new information, the extra three letters from the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's the word light, that the Messiah would see the light of life again. So again, no change to the meaning, just three additional letters that had been lost over time. So you can be completely certain that your Bible is reliable. There's no doubt about it because we have over 5,600 manuscripts with which to compare to know uh, what it is, what's in the in the Bible. So, out of I think uh, 130,000 words in the uh, Bible, only 400 of them are in question. So it's a tremendous accuracy rate. Well, you have been listening to Evidence for Faith, a ministry of Ratio Christi. Uh, send your comments or questions to email at evidenceforfaith.com, and please join us again next week for more reasons to believe. And always remember that the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah!